Our Old Testament reading this morning is a responsive reading from Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, her hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. The New Testament reading is from the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, beginning in the 26th verse. It can be located on your scripture street or page 851 of your pew Bible. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And then verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is the word of the Lord. Children, you are dismissed to your respective classes. Let's return to the scripture we read with Blake just a few moments ago from Mark chapter 14. Earlier this year, we began working through different parts of the Bible, uh, spending either two weeks or three weeks in a book and then moving to another book. In this systematic way, we want to work our way through and preach and study from every book in the Bible. We've looked at Genesis. Uh, then we skip to Matthew, and then to Acts, then back to Exodus. We return to the Gospels to Mark, 
And last Sunday we were in Mark. We're in Mark again this Sunday. And then we'll continue to move. I chose last week's message just to introduce the gospel of Mark in the, in the first chapter. Uh, in this in a pivotal uh, place in the gospels. It's recorded in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke where you see a transition from the ministry of John the Baptist to the ministry of Jesus. Well, this Sunday, we have jumped close to the end of the book of Mark to a text from which, in 50 years of ministry, I've never preached. And uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed this week in working through this text and, and excited uh, to share that with that with you this morning. Before we do, let's pray. And ask God to teach us. Our Father, we bow before you. What a joy it is. We have bowed at different times during this week, individually or with our families. But now we bow, Father, as your church. We've been prophets out in the world this week. Taking the gospel into our neighborhoods where we work, where we go to school, where we've gone, even when we weren't aware. Father, your spirit within us was bearing testimony to the truth of your word, to the truth of the gospel. We pray that you will teach us to be those prophets that takes, take God's word out into Fayette County. But now before you this morning, we bow as priests, bringing the world around us to you. We thank you for how you have answered our prayers in the past, how you've heard us as your priests. Our Father, you've blessed marriages, you've blessed children, you've given life, you've given health, you've given comfort. And this morning we bow before you, the priests of Christ Presbyterian Church, praying that you would continue to bless those who have been in sorrow in our midst, continue to bring your omnipotent comfort to bear upon their lives. We pray especially this morning for Charlie and Wanda Fee. Our Father, they're not members of our church, but they've worshipped with us. They come from a church that gave birth to us, and they're hurting today. We pray that you would bring healing, bring comfort in the face of this, this awful tragedy that has struck their family. We pray that they will know your comfort, your powerful comfort. We pray for Billy Griggs and Jim Bennington. That, Father, you would give them physical strength, mental strength, but most of all, give them spiritual strength. Cause them to look forward with anticipation. Teach us all to look forward with anticipation to what you have prepared for us. Bless Tom Morgan that these treatments will be effective, that he will soon be able to return home. Bless Ray Lynch and Claire Reddit. We pray that you'd bring healing to their eyes, Father. And now as we open your word, we pray that you will teach us. We're your children, Father, and we're just looking at you now and say, Father, teach us. Teach us again. 
we confess that John Sartell cannot teach us so that it will make any difference in our lives. It's only by the power of your spirit that we hear, that we understand, that we're changed from the inside out. So that's our prayer. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Quick review. Mark is the shortest gospel. His gospel begins with the ministry of John the Baptist, not with the birth of Jesus. Matthew and Matthew and Luke take four chapters to get what to get where Mark is in the first chapter. In the first chapter, Mark moves quickly through the ministry of John the Baptist, the baptism of Jesus, Jesus confronting Satan in the wilderness, and the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. All of that. The one word that marks all of the Gospel of Mark, that's all through the Gospel of Mark, is translated in the ESV immediately. It's on every page. It's eight times in the first chapter. It's the Greek word euthos. And actually, euthos is used more than 34, 36 times in the gospel. Sometimes it's not translated that way. But it's used even more than 36 times. It's only used in Matthew 14 times, in Mark 14 times, in John twice. <laughs> Mark wears you out with, I think it, it's translated in the King James Version, translated straightway. Look at, to get a feel for it, look at, at Mark. 121. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching. And he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with, it just goes like this, episode after episode after episode, moving quick, immediately, immediately, immediately. Mark moves through the life of Jesus quickly. But he communicates, Jesus is the Son of Man and Son of God. He is God made flesh. The essential truths of the gospel are there. Matthew and Luke only speak with greater detail. So who wrote this fast-moving gospel? This was John Mark that hung around the disciples. He wasn't one of the twelve, but he hung around the disciples as a younger brother. This was John Mark, who was probably the one that we read of this morning running out of Gethsemane, naked the night Jesus was arrested. This was John Mark, who deserted Paul and Barnabas in the midst of their first church planting journey. This was John Mark, who then trained with Barnabas, who became, tradition tells us, became an aide and a secretary to the apostle Peter in Rome. All evidence points to him writing the book of Mark while he was in Rome with Peter. In the text, it's easy to see as you work through it that he was writing to a Gentile congregation, not a Jewish congregation. Evidence tells us that John Mark wrote this book under the heavy influence of the apostle Peter. But this morning... We read two verses that don't appear anywhere in the other three Gospels. Verse 51, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Who was this young man? I believe it was John Mark himself. 
Why do I believe that? Well, first, calls him a young man. Mark was a young man. He was younger than the 12. He lived in Jerusalem. We know this from Acts chapter 12. In Acts 12, it's interesting. You can read it this afternoon. In Acts chapter 12, Herod had James arrested. James, the apostle, the brother of the apostle John. He not only had him arrested, he had him executed. And this so pleased the Sanhedrin that Herod decided, well, I'll just please them more. And he arrested Peter with the expressed intent of putting him to death. He held him under heavy card. He was in jail in chains. And he, it's very detailed about the guard that he posted. But what happened was an angel appeared in the cell. The chains fell off. Quietly took Peter right out of the prison. And Peter found himself standing in the middle of Jerusalem. And in Acts 12, 12, we read this verse. It's on your sheet. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary. When Peter realized that all this had happened, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name is Mark, where many were gathered together and we're praying. Many believe that Mary's house was where the upper room was. The upper room where they celebrated, the disciples gathered and celebrated the Passover and where Jesus introduced the Lord's Supper. We're told in the book of Acts, remember in the book of Acts when the apostles come back from seeing, watching Jesus ascend? And Jesus told them, you go back to Jerusalem and wait. And they went back. Where did they go? It says expressly in Acts 1, they went back to the upper room. Many scholars believe that this was in the house of Mary. We know that is where Peter went when he found himself out of jail in the middle of Jerusalem. It would make Mark, it would make it would make sense for Mark to have followed Jesus and the disciples as they left that upper room and went to Gethsemane. There are, the other re there are other reasons. The only thing he wore was a linen garment. This was not an outer garment. They were made of wool, usually of wool. Only the wealthy could afford this linen inner garment, undergarment. Mark was obviously wealthy. As his mother lived in a home spacious enough to take care of a large gathering, his uncle was Barnabas, very wealthy leader in the early church. If it was not John Mark, if you want to play with this, if it wasn't John Mark, why well, even mention this? If it was one of the twelve, it was it was not one of the twelve. He had already mentioned they fled. I've tried to come up for years with other explanations. But no other explanation comes close to the supposition that this is John Mark. John Mark, or, or John, the apostle, in writing the gospel of John, he several times referred to himself without using his name, the same as Mark does here. Many of the church fathers taught that John Mark was indeed this young man. 
I think you would find that it's the conclusion of most readers when they read this for the very first time. So you say, John, why is this so important? Well, first, the Holy Spirit saw fit to include it in the first gospel written. It's in God's word. There's a reason that it's there. Secondly, there's a huge message here that each one of us needs to learn and relearn. From infancy, from infancy, our sin, our sin nature urges us to hide our wrongdoing. Our sin nature urges us to build up an appearance of righteousness, of self-righteousness. We see it in the very beginning. The two-year-old pulls himself up and stands at the edge of the coffee table. You either remember doing this or you remember your children doing this. He reaches out to touch a vase, vase, and he turns it over. His mother hears the ruckus and comes into the living room. By this time, the two-year-old has wisely and quickly crawled to the other side of the room. His mother says, John, did you touch that vase? John shakes his head. No, no, that's a no-no, no-no. John will continue to develop the art of denial, or excuse me, the art of denial, of deception. He'll continue to develop the art of self-righteousness right up through his elementary years, all through junior high school, all through high school. And by the time he's in his 20s, he will have turned it into an art form. That's the proclivity. You laugh. Why don't you laugh? Because you did it. I did it. Our children did it. Our grandchildren did it. And we not, may not be around for our great-grandchildren, but they'll do it too. I want us to see this morning why these few words by John Mark are so important. And so we begin. There is a grave danger in pride and self-righteousness. There's a grave danger in pride and self-righteousness. Let me ask you, what does God hate? What does God hate? Murder? Adultery? Idolatry? What does God hate? He tells us. Look at Proverbs 6, 16. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. And then he gives the list. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. What's the very first one? What does God hate? The very first thing, haughty eyes. 
The eyes are windows to our soul. If we look happy, we're usually happy. If we look sad, we're usually sad. Haughty eyes. You look proud. Haughty eyes. God hates it. The New King James Version translates that a proud look. God hates our pride. God hates my proud look. I could spend the rest of the week, and I mean the week, reading verses from Scripture about God's hatred of pride and how dangerous it is to be proud. Listen to Isaiah 2.12. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. There's a day appointed when God is going to deal with the pride of mankind and pull it down. A day like no other. In Proverbs 16, 5, we read this. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. You want to know why this is dangerous? Because to be that proud, to be self-righteous, it is an abomination. God hates it. Pride is dangerous simply because God hates the pride of mankind. It's dangerous to incur the wrath of God on a daily, hourly basis with our arrogance. But there's another way that this is so dangerous. Our pride keeps us, just like that two-year-old, it keeps us from admitting our sin. Look at 1 John 1, 7. If you don't look at anything else, look at this. 1 John 1, 7 and 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Now you can say to me this morning, I believe I'm a sinner, John. We believe in the biblical doctrine of that man has a sinful heart. But it's one thing to say that and to say, I'm a sinner. It's one thing. To say we confess, yes, I believe that doctrine, but it's another thing to personally confess our sins. Now let's look at it again. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. And then he changes. He said if we confess, if we do that hard thing, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession is the way to forgiveness. But then he returns to no confession. Look at verse 10. If we say we've not sinned, we make him, who's him? God, a liar. In verse 7, this is heavy. In verse 7, John says, when you say you haven't sinned, you lie. You're lying. We're lying. When we say we haven't sinned, We also say, God, you're lying. God, you're lying. Do you see it? We stand in the court of God and call, dare to call him a liar? I can't think of a more dangerous thing to do. 
Why is this proud, sinful nature so bad? Well, because God hates it. Has a day reserved to destroy it. But also pride keeps us from confessing our sin. And that's the only way we're going to be saved. Look at what Jesus says. I've preached from this passage so often in Luke 18. We should know it by heart. Luke 18, 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But this tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you understand what happened there? He said that this self-righteous Pharisee that went to church every single day could, could talk about his obedience and all that he had done to obey God. And he went home lost. He went home without Christ. He went home without salvation. And this tax collector, of all people, confesses his sin. And Jesus says, he went down. What was the difference? One confessed his sin, the other didn't. Do you know how many people? I had an older minister tell me that was a, a mentor of mine. Tell me about his first congregation. It was in the mountains of Virginia. And it was the first Presbyterian church of this small town. And he said, John, I actually believe that 85% of that congregation was lost. He said, I actually believe that they were that Pharisee. Now, this was a very scholarly man. Had several doctorates. Had studied under Rudolf Bulkman, the father of modern biblical liberalism. He had studied under him. He didn't buy what Boltman taught. This man was a wonderful, wonderful reformed scholar, teacher, preached the gospel. I thought that was an exaggeration. But the more I became acquainted with the mainline churches, I think he was right on the money. Do you know how many people go to church every week thinking they're saved by their morality? My morality, they're so proud. My morality, I'm a good person. Start asking people, you know, what are you going to say when you stand before God? And he says, why should I let you into my heaven? You'll be amazed how many people will say, because I'm a good person. Do you know how many preachers, not people just coming to church, but do you know how many preachers stand in the pulpit and tell their congregations they're in good stead with God? Because you are good people. Jesus says it plainly. The tax collector confessing his sin leaves the temple forgiven and cleansed. 
The seemingly self-righteous Pharisee leaves the temple under the wrath of God. There's a grave danger, folks, an awful danger in pride and self-righteousness. Now back to Mark. Mark, when he wrote this gospel, was at the height of his fame. He grew up in a home that had hosted Peter and the disciples and may have hosted Jesus. His cousin was the famous Barnabas. I said, uncle, I said, his cousin, Barnabas. He had at least started with Paul on his first church planting mission. True, he deserted Paul and Barnabas. And Paul had refused to take him on the second church planting effort. But he then went with Barnabas on another mission trip. Paul later, when he would be in prison in Rome, when he thought he might be executed, wrote Timothy and said, Timothy, come to me quickly. Bring John Mark. I have need of him and get here before winter. Mark was at the height of his fame when he wrote this gospel. He was with Peter, the true legend of the early church. He was with Peter in Rome. What an incredible spiritual resume writing the first gospel. As Mark writes in Rome at this point in his gospel, he has exposed the cowardice of the disciples in Gethsemane. They had fled. He is about to expose the sin of the great Peter. He's about to expose that, that Peter that evening, he denied that he even knew Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. That's what this passage is about, the frailty and failure of Jesus' own disciples. They all, to a man, deserted Jesus. And Mark stops in between the fleeing disciples and exposing Peter's sin. He stops and he said, I ran too. I ran too. I was there. I was intending to follow Jesus where they took him. And then they grabbed me. I ran away. I ran too. And the worst thing was I ran right out of my clothes. I ran, I ran out naked. Nakedness is a thing that runs all through scripture. When Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? They covered themselves, hiding their nakedness from each other. And then they did, some, they did something they had never done. They hid from God. He would come and walk with them and talk with them. And they hid from him. They hid from each other. They covered up and they hid from God. They were not there when God arrived. To meet him, they, they were not standing there waiting, saying, we've done something awful, we, we've transgressed. They weren't there to say that. And when God said, have you done this? What did Adam say? Eve did. I, I'm good. 
It, it was Eve. We see this theme of nakedness over and over again in God's world. In Scripture, we read when we clothe ourselves before God, when we dress in our own righteousness, we're really naked. Where does it say that? Look at Revelation 3. We've been studying this on Wednesday night. Revelation 3, 15. He's speaking to the church of Laodicea. You know the passage. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. This is what they say. This is what the, the church is doing this now. This is the church. For you say, I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing. He's saying this now about the church. You are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I clothe you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness not, may not be seen. These people were inside the church, but they were there in pretense. They had dressed themselves up in their morality. They were the Pharisee in Luke 18. I'm glad I'm not like those people and look how good we are. And God calls them out. He said, you're bragging about how well dressed you are. You're naked. You're naked. You're not well off like you think you are. You are poverty stricken. In the Old Testament, we read that our righteousness, our self-righteousness is like filthy rags. Do you know what the term is there for filthy rags? It's a term that's used for menstrual cloths. You're dressed in menstrual cloths. That's what it says. Here he says you're naked. But in Scripture, when we become naked before God, when we strip ourselves of self-righteousness, when we raise our hand and say, I ran too. When we get naked before God confessing our sins, then we are really becoming clothed before God. That's the irony. Look at verse 18 in Revelation 3. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. What's that? The gospel, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. What are those white garments? It's the cross of Jesus Christ, the body and blood of Jesus Christ given for us. Those are our clothes that really cover it. They're the only clothes that cover our nakedness. I've always talked to you about my special chair. It's really God's special chair. I have a chair somewhere here this morning. We'll just sit it right here. If you sit in that chair, you see these, well, there's usually screens, there's screens that come down. We use them with our youth on Wednesday night. If you sit in that chair, everything that you did and said and thought for the last year is going to be up on those screens. 
All right. We're really good. John Sartell's a good guy. Y'all are good people. Our elders are good people. Our deacons are good people. Surely we'll sit in that chair and we'll invite our friends to come see the show. We'll invite our wives, our husbands, our children. Come see the show. We'll invite our parents. Come see the show. I wouldn't sit in that chair. You couldn't. If you said, John, I'll give you a billion dollars sitting in that chair. Nope. I'm not going to do it. I'm sorry. We often sing in this church. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. There's only one place to go to cover our nakedness. And it's in Jesus Christ. It's not in our works. And here is Mark writing in Rome. And he says, the disciples deserted Jesus. They ran for their lives. All I saw were elbows and heels. I'm about to tell you in great detail how Peter denied that he even knew Jesus, not just once, not just twice, but three times. But he writes, before I tell you that story, there was a young man there. He left his house in a hurry that evening to catch up with the disciples. When they got Jesus, they arrested him. He intended to follow them. He was only wearing a linen undergarment. The soldiers tried to capture him, but he ran right out of that garment. Ran away naked. That was John Mark in Rome. Already a legend in the church. But he raised his hand and said, I ran too. What would Jesus say to CPC this morning? What would he say to me, to you? Are we hiding our sin? Are we dressing ourselves in our own excuses and justification? If that's our game, then Jesus says, you're poor, you're wretched, you're naked, blind. Or did we walk in here this morning confessing the hidden sins of our lives? Did we become naked in our confession? If that's how we came. Then we're clothed. We're clothed in the richest clothes we could ever wear. We're clothed in the blood of Christ. We're clothed in His righteousness. Our hymn is when I survey the wondrous cross.